unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. So the Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am unemployed graduate student Michael Farmer, and I'll be your moderator this week. Joining me, as always, is Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College, Nathan Gilmore. How's it going, Nathan? Going pretty well, Michael. And we've also got graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia, David Grubbs. Say hello, David. Hello, David. I knew that one was coming. <laughs> and good night, Gracie. <laughs> our topic this, or good night, Stacy, if you uh, if you're a CWC listener. Our topic, <laughs> our topic this le- week is uh, Sam Tannenhaus's recent book, The Death of Conservatism, which uh, I'm going to go ahead and warn our audience. I am probably going to say conservatism because for some reason I cannot, um, I cannot stick to conservatism. Um, when, when I said that word. Anyway, uh, before we get to that book, we're going to have our usual housekeeping stuff. We want to remind our listeners that we have a blog, uh, which you can access at www.christianhumanist.org chb. This week, we've got a review uh, from Nathan of Brian McLaren's latest book, which didn't raise the hailstorm of controversy I assumed it w- uh, would. Are you a little disappointed about that too, Nathan? Terribly disappointed. Every time I try to be petulant and offensive, nobody takes offense. Uh, you yep. just need to be more petulant. That's because your your petulant offensive is more polite than my polite. In, in <laughs> fact, you got linked on several other blogs about how fair your review was. So uh, if you're looking for a fair, non-inflammatory review of a new kind of Christianity, head over to the blog. Well, and the, the other funny thing is over on Amazon.com, I cross-posted the review over there, and there were a couple, you know, McLaren enemies, I'll put them that way, that didn't know quite what to do with my review. Hmm. They they replied to it, and they're like, I I I think I agree with this guy, <laughs> but he says nice things. <laughs> a, a lesson in moderation. Show show us the new way, Nathan. <laughs> Gilmore's also got his weekly post explicating the lectionary verses, and in this case, that's called The City That Kills Prophets. Um, meanwhile, David has written a very interesting post about dragons, or as our Minnesotan friends might say, dragons. And he's got a historical edition today of uh, Celebrity Birthdays, and then I've got a post on Jack Kerouac, and then one on Protestant attitudes toward marriage. So we encourage you to go check those out and join the discussion that's going on in the comments section, um, which is mostly between the three of us, I must, must say. Uh, we do have we do have one piece of listener feedback this week from our friend Sam Mulberry over at CWC the Radio Show, and I, it's funny enough where I think I just need to read it verbatim. If you guys don't have a problem with that, go for it. So here's what Sam says. So I was sitting in church yesterday, and we were doing the responsorial prayer, and we got to the part where we are all supposed to be thinking about the personal confessions that we have, the prayers that are in our hearts. The church was totally silent, and our pastor was letting the silence sit and stew for a long time, as is his way. Um, You can tell he's not a Presbyterian, by the way. We rush right through that part. Um, As I was sitting there, I started to think, isn't that Michael Farmer's voice? And then I thought I heard Grubbs and Gilmore, but I couldn't figure out what was going on. After after what seemed like an eternity of silence, broken only by faint traces of the CHP host's haunting voices, the prayer came to an end. I looked around to try to figure out what I was hearing, then I realized that my wife had been using my iPod and listening for the first time to the CHP. She forgot to turn it off when she gave it to me, and it was sitting in my pocket, broadcasting silently to the House of Mercy congregation. Sounds like it wasn't so silent, Sam, but uh, that's the story. What do you What do you guys think about that? And there was thunder, but the voice of the Lord was not in the thunder. <laughs> <laughs> My wife said it sounded like uh, we were his uh, burning bush. <laughs> I was thinking more Jiminy Cricket, but... <laughs> I was thinking we should send Sam a Christian Humanist podcast windbreaker, since uh, I think blasphemy in our account deserves a windbreaker at least. <laughs> Sam, any rate, go if to you Nebraska. Got... <laughs> and liberate my people. <laughs> anyway, cool. At any rate, if you've got any stories about us that you need to confess, you can send them our way at thechristianhumanist at uh, gmail.com. Uh, with all that out of the way, we can move into our discussion of the death of conservatism. 
And uh, <laughs> I should mention bef- again before we start that our pre-show discussion was much heavier than usual, and so if the questions I'm asking seem more perceptive and probing than my questions usually seem, that's probably because David, David and Nathan wrote uh, the perceptive ones. So... For those of you who aren't familiar with this book and its author, The Death of Conservatism came out, um, I think, late last year. It came out last year. Sam Tannenhaus, the author, is the editor of the New York Times Book Review, and he's the host of that magazine's podcast, um, which I I really enjoy and I I recommend to everyone, regardless of your political views. Uh, I like Tannenhaus because he's a big John Updike fan. He conducted one of the last interviews with Updike before his death. And he's hardly, we we should point out, he's hardly anti-conservative. Um, one of his other books is a biography of Whitaker Chambers, who's a conservative icon and who gets also a good amount of play in this book. And I think he's working on a biography of William F. Buckley right now. So at the very least, he's interested in conservatism. Uh, see, I've, I've written here conservatism. Um, I've, I've, heard, I've heard calls for him, in fact, to step down from the editor of the book review for being too conservative. So um, whatever conservatives feel about him for saying their movement is dead, liberals don't like him because he's too interested in conservatism. So um, with that out of the way, let's begin our discussion by talking about our initial reactions to Tannenhaus's book. And it's a, it's a very short book. I think it's about 120 pages. Um, did either of you have any trouble sticking with it? Or, or did, you, did you agree initially with Tannenhaus's point? Did you need to be convinced? Uh, let's start with you, Nathan. What was your gut reaction to the book? Well, my first reaction, uh, I actually read it over Christmas break, so I sort of revisited here over the last couple of days getting ready for the show. And my major impression is that it's something like Hannah Rosen writing about conservative homeschooling families or David Brooks writing about liberals. Uh, It's someone who has sort of a benign curiosity about a group, but because of the unfamiliarity, uh, seems to miss certain steps that they make. Uh, And, you know, I I think that's not a bad way to proceed. And, you know, it's a certainly we would never learn anything if we didn't take a few missteps here and there. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely a different account of conservatism than I would have expected from someone who self-identified as a conservative. David, what did you think? Uh, I, 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 I got to admit, my, my reactions were mostly negative, um, mainly because he began with uh, dis- descriptions of the most recent political cycles. Um, with which I differ him with him on on his evaluations, and because it started out on that point when he got into, I guess really the historical meat of his argument, talking about you know especially nineteenth century political history and theory, um, those are that's a subject that I don't really know much about, but because he started off the book with an account of recent history with which I differed. The whole time I was reading his account of 19th century political history, I kept – because I had no way of to evaluate his claims, I kept being suspicious um, and wondering, was he is he pulling a fast one? I really go need to read everything Burke wrote. <laughs> Good but, luck. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know. I, I'm still not going to go do that, but I, I don't know. My, my experience was somewhat tainted by the fact that I wanted to disagree with him, but during the bulk, you know, the sort of the central bulk of the of the book, I didn't have any way of disagreeing with him because I didn't know anything other than what he was saying. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and I got to say, I was uh, fairly disappointed with the book too, although for different reasons than David. Um, I'd really been looking forward to reading it. This was my idea uh, for the three of us to read it and talk about it, and I, and I was actually pretty receptive to his argument. But I found it, um, at least on the, on the first time through, I found the book to be to be fairly muddled. Um, he, he has a lot of problems with the state of conservatism, as it turns out, and um, I don't think he does a great job of elucidating and organizing them. And uh, David mentions this long history of conservatism that's actually the second chapter of the book, and I can see where that fits in, but I think that chapter could probably have been trimmed, which would make the book even shorter than it was. So it, it feels almost as though Tannenhaus is taking what could have been an article-length piece, and he's trying to expand it into what turns out to be a rather short book. And I'm not Wait. sure he was terribly successful in that expansion. As much as I yeah, like him... And that's I'm actually what happened. Oh, is it? You, you, you yeah. found that out? Yeah, The Death of Conservatism was an article that he wrote in autumn, you know, in, like, winter 2008. 
Oh yeah, which, wasn't it for which a he, which he expanded? Which, which so, was it? The New Republic he wrote that for, or was it a conservative magazine? I believe it was the New Republic. Oh, it was the New Republic, the most liberal um, of all the uh, <laughs> mainstream magazines. So, you know, when you were saying at the beginning that this was a recent book, yeah, it did. It was published last year, but these are, you know, mainly ideas that he forged in the wake of Barack Obama's electoral victory. They are not, and I did not see that they were in any way updated to account for basically a year of actual President Barack Obama experience. And I wondered if he wrote the book now, might he have said some things differently? I don't know. Well, David, um, let, let's actually, that's a, that's a kind of moving into a question I was going to get to later, but let's go ahead and deal with that now. Um, this book actually leaves a bit of a bad taste in my mouth because of when it was released. Um, it was released, obviously, when we had a Democratic president. We had that Democratic supermajority in Congress that we no longer have. Um, conservatives were already on the ropes, uh, particularly the GOP was already on the ropes. And yet Tannenhaus's argument doesn't just boil down to the Republicans lost the 2008 elections, thus conservatism is dead. Do you think he could have written this book in the middle of the Bush era? Could he have written this and published it in 2004? Would conservatism still have been dead to him? Do you think? He seems to think that it was because he paints um, George Bush as, as the the sort of ultimate conservative conservative movement conservative ideologue which he sees as as the betrayal and the ones who killed um uh the 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 political conservative which he admires um so you'd think that he that he could have said it um that he could have written it but on the other hand and and maybe this is maybe because of when it was written uh, the article immediately after the election, and then the book at the, that's sort of the the beginning of of uh, you know of President Obama's uh, term in office. I felt kind of like Abe Vigoda in 1982 when Time Magazine announced that that he was dead. So I, f I felt a bit like that. It also also the book felt somewhat like. You know when a politician, a prominent politician dies and then every all the politicians feel like they have to say some nice things about him, even people from the opposite party, and they end up being kind of kind of vague, nice things, and they're mainly doing to show that they're, you know, they're big guys who can set partisan aside because, well, death has intervened. Um I felt a little bit like that when I was when I was reading the book. Um, you know, I mean I, I guess true, true, true confessions. I'm the, I'm the more conservative of the, of the three here, and I felt that Tannenhaus was was sort of self-consciously and sort of condescendingly crowing over my body. I I got that feeling a little bit too, um, and, and it, like I said, it it felt it felt a little ugly coming at a point in time when it did. Now now that the Democrats. It's clear can can't really get anything passed. It it it'd be interesting to hear what Tannenhaus believes, but I, I'm yeah. not I'm not sure his argument is Republicans don't have political power so much as his his argument is uh, conservatism as a as a well, uh, philosophy is dead. It felt just as appropriate to me. This book felt just as inappropriate to me now as when uh, after uh, Bush's second reelection. Um, the you know there were republicans around crowing that you know this is this is permanent republican dominance the democrats are out forever you know um which i didn't think was true then and definitely has been shown not to be true now i mean their election cycles i think Tannenhaus is uh maybe a little presumptuous to plant a stake in the ground and say here that cycle ends anyway well, and I mean, I, I think that Tannenhaus makes a distinction between conservatism as a philosophy and the right wing as a political entity. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't know if Tannenhaus would have written this book in 2004, uh, but I could probably point to authors who might have done so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of folks uh, more in the Russell Kirk tradition of sort of traditionalist um, conservatism, you know, the uh, Rod Dreher, folks like that, I mean, were talking about how sort of a libertarian super capitalist ideology had overtaken what they took to be a non-ideological conservatism 
uh, at least mm-hmm. as early as 2005. That's about the time that I got interested in that whole internal debate within conservatism. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, to, to use a passive verb, the book could have been written in 2004. I don't know if Tannenhaus would have been the guy to do it. Nathan, do you think it's a fair distinction to make between movement conservatism, conservatism, and, uh, <laughs> and I, I told you I'm going to screw it up, movement, um, movement conservatism and philo- philosophical conservatism? Do you, do you think those are two different things? I, I sure hope they are, and here's why. Because, <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, when I am reading from, you know, Richard Weaver, the conservative rhetoric scholar, when I I'm reading Richard from Weaver. Russell Kirk, uh, you know, who is a, a philosophical conservative type, when I'm reading Neil Postman, uh, who is, you know, my favorite grumpy conservative, I, I don't think that man was ever happy in his life, uh, you know, <laughs> I feel like what they are writing resonates with me. But then as soon as I turn on my radio to the AM dial, I become convinced in about 45 seconds that I'm not whatever that is. So, I mean, I guess, you know, I I would hope that at least we could make some distinctions. If we don't want to make the categories movement conservatism and philosophical conservatism, I'd be happy with another taxonomy. Uh, But I think that just experientially on my end of things, you know, I feel like I am in some way a kindred spirit of Russell Kirk uh, in a way that I am not a kindred spirit of Ann Coulter. Yeah, or or at least you could understand, even if you're not a conservative, you can understand Postman or uh, David Brooks or, or who have you in, in a way that you can't. I don't understand Limbaugh in any way. I don't. I don't understand what he's all about. I don't understand the people who uh, who follow him. I, I I just don't get it. I get um. I, I get some of the actual thinkers, on, right on, on on the conservative side of the. Field. And, and I know this isn't strictly the topic today, but I mean I feel the same way about folks who call themselves liberal or progressive. You know, I mean when people are talking about labor unions and organizing in order to, you know, provide a counterforce to big business and capitalism. That kind of leftism, I can certainly resonate. When we get into what folks have dubbed the new left, you know, which pretty much seems isolated to college towns and people under 25 and college professors. I was going to say. <laughs> you know, when people start talking that language, I, I, you know, it's about like turning on AM radio for me. I, it takes me about 45 seconds to say, whatever that is, it ain't me. And, and I mean one one of the differences, and we're getting way off topic from our show notes, but that's okay. Um, one one of the differences for me is that when you're talking about a philosophical movement, you're talking about a certain amount of openness, right? But the hallmark of uh, both Limbaugh on the right, and I, I hate to keep picking on Limbaugh, but he picks on plenty of people, so I don't feel that bad about it. When you're talking he's, about Limbaugh on the he's right... He's big enough to take it. <laughs> or Al Franken, or even someone I like, like Hendrik Hertzberg on the left, you're talking about people who are not really open to anything but their own opinion. And I, I find that so uh, unattractive and off-putting that it, it makes me want to be whatever they're not. Right. Well, and I mean, you know, just to move it out of electoral politics for a second, you know, I mean, if you're even talking about more abstract thinkers, you know, someone like Thomas Sowell on the right, I mean, I have never read a paragraph of his that I agree with. But then on the other hand, if you, you know, talk about a a big shot celebrity academic leftist like Michael Hart or Antonio Negri, I mean, I think those guys are so full of animal feces that, I mean... I actually tried to sell their book, and no one would buy it from me. Ouch. Yeah. It's still in my garage. <laughs> I'm hoping the mice eventually eat it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You couldn't, um, you couldn't sell Michael Hart's book in a college town? Is that, a, is that the dustbin of history? Is that what the, what the, the expression <laughs> means? I, I think it's one valid meaning of it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually took it to a used bookstore that I go to. Uh, I try to go up there about once a year in Johnson City called Mr. K's, which is my favorite used bookstore in the universe. Uh, and, you know, th- they actually wouldn't buy back a number of my books. That was one of them that I really hoped they would buy from me, and they wouldn't. Ouch. All right. Um, Nathan, in our lengthy preparations for this show, uh, you argued that Tannenhaus's central move in this book is to redefine the term conserv- conservative over and against the term radical. 
um, thus making someone like Dwight Eisenhower a conservative and Rush Limbaugh not one in this sense. Do you think that's a legitimate move for him to make? Honestly, I think it's a little bit too broad. Uh, and the reason is because Tannenhaus seems to define tradition as simply status quo. Yeah. Uh, so in other words, you know, he says Obama is a conservative because he is conserving, you know, some form of New Deal liberalism, whereas, you know, Bush was a radical because he was trying to destroy it. And I'm thinking, well, if traditions can be defined that quickly, you know, in 60 years, then I guess that definition works. Mm -hmm. uh, but even the philosophical conservatives that I respect deeply, you know, want to go back to medieval traditions, uh, back to mercantile traditions. Uh, you know, I mean, they want to extend things backwards a lot farther than the 1930s. And uh, further so than I mean, the 1950s, which is some, how they're sometimes um, parodied. Right, right. Oh, sure, sure. And honestly, I, I've actually read more left-wing people appealing to the 50s in mm. recent years than I ever would have expected, you know, simply because those were years when labor unions were at the peak of their power. Uh, those were years when, you know, one person in a household could work and support a family because unions were much stronger than the companies that they opposed. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's bizarre, but, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's the, Dem the Democrats who are watching Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> David, in that same pre-discussion, um, you said that you felt that Tannenhaus reduces conservatism to one side of a dialectic. I'm going to quote you here. Um, mm -hmm. Quote, in which the liberal progressive whatever side is the one that introduces new elements and the conservative is limited to reacting and mitigating. And I think it's clear from your tone that you don't think that's a fair move. Do you disbelieve in the dialectic in American politics or do you think he's pigeonholing conservatism too much? What, and if so, what role does conservatism have? Well, you didn't quote what, what the phrase that I was personally proudest of. Uh, which is that I think Tannenhaus uh, characterizes conservatives as the dragging heels of the body politic. I was trying to make you look bad so that I would look good, David. Oh, okay, okay. Um, here, here's here's how I I, I, I differ with that, and th this this connects back to you know his distinction I think between um, his distinction between philosophical conservatism and movement conservatism. I would I, I I don't I don't see it the same way he does. I, I think of it more as uh, what he see what he calls political uh, conservatism. I would say is more the theory of conservatism and observations about how conservatives within specific political units uh, affect that the trajectory of that of that political unit. Um, what he calls movement conservatism, I would call what the conservatives in the moment are actually doing. Okay. Anyway, uh, it, where he brings the dialectic in is when he talks about Burke, and and particularly Burke's discussion of pol of uh, politics as he wants it practiced as a kind of mathematics or triangulation. All right. Um, but there again, I think what Tannenhaus is doing is is taking. Burke's observation and trying to turn it into into something that's that's practical. The dialect, I think, may be the effect that conservatism has on the trajectory, um, and I think that Burke sees that effect as good. But I don't think that the heels are dragging simply to drag. Um, conservatives in any political moment have specific policy goals that they believe strongly about and pursue. And he talks about some of Burke's own uh, strong political positions, uh, particularly slavery. Um, I mean, the act of, tri of triangulation itself, which, you know, if you're just going to talk about splitting the difference and trying to get the position that has the greatest consensus, I don't see that as a particularly conservative move. That's more of a that's the that's the move that gets the most people voting for you. Um, uh, but I, I think I think the idea that that conservatives should be content just to function as the other half that helps triangulate the body politic, the kind of not, wet blanket, right? But not believe any, but not have anything in particular that that they're pursuing. That that just seems really really strange to me, and it seems to. Uh, I, I think betray a perspective that 
that Tannenhaus seems to think that the body politic is actually moving in a particular direction and that conservatives serve their function simply by slowing it down. But I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that there's some kind of inevitable trajectory of, of history for, you know, for, for these political units. Um, and so when the conservatives are dragging their heels, it's for particular reasons, for particular reasons, they're particular things they want to, they want to restore or preserve. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think, I think he, he's, he's transferred Burke's observations about effect, um, into what he thinks should be praxis. Anyway. Nathan, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, what David says is that, you know, you can point to conservative, or I guess you can call conservative a historical trend and make it this grand diachronic phenomenon that, you know, in any given era, there's going to be some people who want things the old way. Mm. Uh, but I agree with David. I mean, that, that if you take that paradigm and try to impose it on any given moments, conservatives, uh, then you're going to miss a whole lot of the particularity, uh, which is kind of ironic since that is, you know, as far as Russell Kirk and folks like that are concerned, that's part of what makes conservatives conservative is a, is an attention to the particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and also it seems extraordinary, uh, and actually kind of humorous to me that Tannenhaus sees, sees that, uh, the, that conservative effect as the essence of conservatism and the thing that he values in conservative and what he and apparently the sole thing that he thinks conservatives should be pursuing when in our political environment right now uh, the people who call themselves conservatives are also termed by their opposite set the party of no and to me the party of no means you guys are dragging your heels just to drag your heels but Tannenhaus seems to think that's a good thing well, and Tannenhaus gets into that, right? He talks about the shutdown of the government in the 90s mm -hmm. under Newt Gingrich, which was the same the same thing. And he talks about how Democrats didn't do that when George W. Bush got into office. Now, I, I don't know enough about recent political history to say whether that's true or not. But this is this is a point he makes that the, the Republicans, when there's a when there's a Democrat trying to get things across, consistently block it. Democrats don't do that to Republicans or so he claims. Well, yeah. I mean that, and you know that goes a little bit deeper into his idea of conservatives as people who want to maintain a status quo. You know that I think his argument in that section is that the Democrats were actually being more conservative because they were saying, "All right, even though you know the figurehead at the top of the party is different, we're going to continue the maintenance of the institution." Uh, so you know, I, I again, you know, I don't know if that. Well, no, I do know that that flattens the conception of conservatism to the point where it almost means nothing. Well, uh, yeah. Go ahead, David. Sorry. 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 I think it also flattens historical moment. Um, he leaves out the fact that for for basically six out of the eight years of George Bush, George also had uh, Republican majorities in both houses of Congress. And, and even among uh, the Democrats within – both how you know both both houses of Congress, um, even within even with that within that party, there were the more liberal, if we'll use that word, and the more conservative, if we we'll use that word, the guys who these days are often called blue dogs. So and rhinos on the other side. And rhinos on the other side. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the, these these terms do get you know flung around with reckless abandon. Um, so, so when he's just what what he's when he seems to be thinking, wow, describing this really reasonable, really acquiescent, Demo you know, Democrats during the Bush years, that isn't my memory of it. My memory of it for is, six years. You're talking about impotent Democrats. Yes, is is six years of Democrat Party leadership screaming at many things that Bush did, but simply not having the votes to do. To do anything effective about it, which they did do a lot of things about judge nominations. That's true. Um, they did, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, now I think they're screaming. They're screaming again because they seem to. They, they, 
they you know they think that you know they've they've got the president and they've got the they've got the majorities but they don't have the same majorities that republicans did during 6 years of bush and frankly i don't think they're as good at disciplining uh, disciplining their party and getting it unified to get those things passed. Uh, one interesting distinction uh, that Tannenhaus marks between liberals and conservatives is that conservatives demand orthodoxy while liberals, he says, only want compromise. Now, Nathan, you have remarked in the past in one of our many di political discussions that one difference between the two parties is that Democrats will eat their own, to use your favorite phrase, and Republicans tend to stand together until the death. Um, so that kind of gets into what what David is, is pointing out about the Republican versus Democrat Congresses, the Republicans are able to block the Democrats because they stand together. The Democrats um, bicker amongst each other and can't get anything passed. Um, do you think your observation is compatible with both David's and Tannenhaus's, Nathan? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would only qualify to say that death doesn't mean you've stopped breathing. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, it is remarkable what happened to both Bush Sr. and Bush Jr. when they left the White House. Uh, and, you know, of course, both of them left the White House, you know, uh, with Democratic presidents in their wake. And mm -hmm. in both cases, I mean, at least for the first year and a half post-Bush, uh, and by the way, I, I count the post-Bush era as starting sometime around early November, you know, when the votes were counted after Obama, because, you know, to hear... I'd push at, it at back. least the folks I talked to. I mean, you would have thought I'd push Bush it back to July, there. frankly. Yeah. Now? I'd push it back to July, frankly. Uh, fair enough. Fair the enough. lamest of lame duck presidents. Well, I, anyway, somebody you know, cut that yeah. duck's feet off. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that you know uh, there is definitely a tendency to scapegoat the life out of people who have failed among the Republicans, whereas Democrats don't wait until they failed. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the crazy thing is, you know, that, you know, while on one hand, you know, people are talking about how, you know, the current president is a socialist and all this, uh, there are actual left-wing voices uh, that nobody reads except Democrats, which, you know. <laughs> which must be so disturbing to them. Right, which, which <laughs> kind of plays into my point, you know, that are just trashing Obama at least twice a week. Uh, for perpetuating Bush-era policies. I've actually wondered why there aren't more people doing that. Doing what now? Trashing him for not doing anything. Um, oh, that, there, are, there but, are, but, you know, the news networks never pick up on those people. I mean, all I we hear about is how the conservatives think he's a socialist, but he hasn't done anything that makes him sound like a socialist to me. Right, Ex I mean, as far as I can Except continue Bush's bailout of the banks. Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, and, you know, I don't watch a whole lot of evening news, but when I do watch it, I mean, mainly the folks you hear from are the folks who are talking about how liberal Obama is. Uh, so, I mean, you know, as far as, you know, the, the Sunday morning talk shows, you know, that I watch occasionally, you know, when I get home from church, because I'm usually teaching Sunday school while they're on. Uh, but, you know, when I see those folks, you know, they will have folks like, Newt Gingrich on their show as guests, mm. uh, but on the other hand, they won't have folks like, and I'm trying to think of, you know, like Gr Glenn Greenwald or Amy Goodman or, you know, the folks that I think of as sort of American left-wingers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, David, I mean, is, is that the impression you get? I mean, that's that's coming from me who, you know, I my my two small kids have largely kept me away from television for the last five years. Uh, I mean, is yeah. that the impression you what get? You? Um, my, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think it's because the, the American left is and always has been much more politically engaged and much more invested in very specific political issues than conservatives have been. Um, for the most part, um, I'm not talking about conservative politicians. I'm talking about the people who end up voting conservative are, uh, to my mind – and in my experience, the people that I've known, they're, they're the kind of people who go to work and would just rather the government just stay the heck out of their life as much as possible and mind its own business and just not screw things up. Yeah. Um, once, whereas, once Republicans get interested in – really interested in specific politics, they generally turn into libertarians. 
Well, and, and and you know, and that's when, and frankly, I don't think I don't think it's healthy. I mean, I, I I'm you know, I I made this comment before, but you know, being invested in a a specific moment in government is like being invested in the shape of the clouds. Um, it's it's you know, it's going to shift and it's going to change. And, you know, you're going to have to have some kind of stability within yourself and some kind of, you know, I think maybe healthy, you know, healthy conservative sense of, you know, I've got to mind my own business, whatever the government's doing. Um, I, I, I think that's kind of necessary just for sanity. Um, Absolutely. But um, I, I think the left has always been much more invested in specific issues. And for them uh, – the world rises or falls on the fate of their issues. And if, you know, if they don't see the person they voted for specifically pursuing the policy that they think is basically the end of creation, um, it's a betrayal. Whereas, you know, I think most conservatives felt, you know, sort of, you know, maybe sometimes you know, didn't approve of specific things that Bush did, but generally during the Bush years had uh, a generally genial attitudes towards him is that they felt that in general, he wasn't screwing things up. Now, David, to play devil's advocate, didn't you just admit that conservatives have a much more simplistic outlook than liberals who seem to have a much more nuanced outlook? Conser I mean, what it sounds like you're saying, if, if you're approaching this from, um, from an outsider's perspective, is that what you're saying is that conservatives are, um, all conservatives care about is having their guy in office. Liberals have actual goals. Um, I, 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 okay, I could see how I could have been heard that way. Um, and this, this is a little personal philo uh, political or philosophical theory. This is, this is me pretending to be Burke. Not ever having read Burke, um, <laughs> I, to me, I associate being. I am a conservative in this sense, in that I see it as kind of my role in life to sort of adjust myself to what's going on to be most successful for myself. Um, I see it as the more the more liberal tendency to say. There is something wrong with the world and the way I'm situated in it. World change. Um, and I don't think these are, you know, I don't, I don't think that people who tend, you know, people who are politically conservative are all conservative. You know, they're all the way I've just described as conservative on everything. I think everyone adjusts on some things and demands other people or, or the world adjust to them on other things. But I think that your, your tendencies either way, um, I think uh, end, end up oftentimes having reflections on your politics. But, um, but I think, uh, on, on particular issues, someone, someone who is, who usually just minds their own business and adjusts can be pushed into, into screaming for change if they find it more and more and more and more difficult to adjust to make success for themselves, and then they join the Tea Party. Hmm. And see, and that's I, get afraid I, I tend to look at it more as there's a spectrum, mm -hmm. you know, on which you know the extreme ends of both parties tend to be very issue centered. Mm -hmm. I mean, may, maybe that's what Michael was talking about. You know, folks who get too issue centered, you know, leave the Republican Party and go, you know, teabagging or whatever they do. Hey. And, you know, folks who... That's still not appropriate. Listeners, I want to point out that when we did our last politics show, I used the term teabaggers, and Nathan Gilmore reprimanded me sternly. <laughs> and now he has uh, now he has brought out that word. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Okay, they go join the Tea Party, all right? Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, you know, folks who get very, very issue-centered on the other side, you know, go become Nader's Raiders. And right. so I, I guess I imagine, you know, more of a tendency to polarize on both ends of the spectrum and to leave the party. And, mm. you know, and, you know, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I tend not to vote for Democrats or Republicans in federal elections. Um, you know, just because I do think that Democrats and Republicans are largely, just as you just described, David, folks who are 
pretty much fine with the status quo, uh, you know, just as long as the things that really, really bug them don't happen. Right. So are, are you wheat roots like Jonathan Evans? <laughs> uh, he, I, I, I've actually become a supporter of Jonathan Evans' guy, Joe Schreiner. Uh, ah, his website, okay. you know, is voteforjoe.com, if I remember right. Uh, so now yeah, we have I mean, to give I, equal time to all the other parties, Nathan. Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't make money off of this. We should. Well, that's a discussion for another day. Well, let's move on, Nathan. Um, Tananas claims that movement conservatives are either silent on what he calls, quote, the real issues of the day, by which he seems to mean the economic crisis, or else they're yelling mindless truisms like take back the culture, and uh, he says, from what? Uh, Tannenhaus claims that a statement like take back the culture is misguided because there are no more culture wars, or at least he claims like statements that like take <laughs> back the culture belong to, quote, a bygone period with its culture wars and attacks on sinister elites. Uh, do you think he's a bit premature in declaring the culture wars over? Um, and, and do you think he's only able to do this because his side is ahead? I think he's only able to do this because he published this book before the resurgence of Sarah Palin. Gotcha. Uh, I mean, because, I mean, I, a lot of my good friends like Sarah Palin a great deal. Uh, but one thing you have to say about Sarah Palin is she does elite baiting better than most folks on television. Mm-hmm. And true. I mean, you know, I think that this, uh, you know, and, you know, of course, you know, one big question you have to ask is who gets to define what an elite is. Uh mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, for Sarah Palin, you know, uh, Nathan Gilmore sitting in his office teaching college English, you know, would be an elite, uh, but someone who is an executive at an oil company wouldn't necessarily be one. And she's not one, even though she was the governor of a state. Sure, sure. And then on the other hand, you know, someone like, you know, just to go back to Glenn Greenwald, you know, someone who's what I would consider an actual leftist. You know, he would consider the oil company executive an elite, but, you know, if he would look at himself in the mirror and see that he is, you know, one of the, one of the prominent, you know, legal analysts on, a le- on the left, he wouldn't consider himself an elite. Yeah, so, I mean, nobody it, thinks they're the man. <laughs> I do. No, uh, I, I, <laughs> You are the elite one of the three of us, to be fair, Nathan. You're the only one with a grown-up job. Stop oppressing me. That's why we do so much better when you're not here, as you'll recall. Yeah, I, I do keep you down. I, I do remember that conversation. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, one of the things, uh, and Michael, your own post on our blog, I'll go ahead and pitch it, about, you know, why you mistrust or distrust, I forget which consonant was the, at the beginning, populism. Yes. Uh, you know, I think that it speaks to this phenomenon in American politics. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a great scholar of American history, but I mean, I can certainly point to folks like Andrew Jackson, Andrew William Jackson. Jennings Bryan, you know, folks who make public careers out of pointing to some group and saying, you know, those people are the problem. The rest mm-hmm. of us are the solution. And, you know, everything will be all right if we can cut those people out of the power structure. But that that makes me so nervous, and that's what makes me so nervous about Sarah Palin. And, and I, I'm I'm I'll lay my cards on the table and say not only do I not like her, I am frightened of her. And and what what frightens me about her is her insistence that she's just one of the one of the guys. She's just like Joe Sixpack or Sally Lunchpail or whoever. And my point is, I don't want to be governed by someone who's just like me. I want to be governed by someone who is better than me, someone who's smarter than me, better educated, knows what's going on, more compassionate, someone someone who's all around better than me. And I, I that's just what I want. I don't want a reflection of the idiot masses of this country running this country. That's so elitist. I, I am an elitist. <laughs> I am. I, I will take this further, guys. I am a Catonist, which is a word that Ralph C. Wood uses to describe... Uh, uh, Will Percy in uh, the comedy of Redemption, a Catonist, someone like Cato, who uh, when the masses take over, I'm gonna kill myself. 
that's uh, I, I am I am very close to that. I just I, I I don't trust anything about the masses. I don't think they're smart enough to govern themselves. Well, no, I'm no. gonna I'm gonna differ just a little bit with that, and then I'll shoot yeah. it over to you, David. I'm sorry, but okay. Well, also know. just don't make any I'm gonna move to Canada promises because people. My might my wife keeps saying we're moving uh, out of the country if Palin wins in t- uh, 2012, um, and I told her that's not going to happen because there's nowhere else I want to live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I, I Michael, I, I would contend with that. I would say I do trust citizens to govern. What I mistrust, and I mean, to go back to Cato of Utica, you know, because we got to get some classics in here. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, so thank you for leading us that direction. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that what was going especially wrong at that point at the end of the Roman Republic was not that the masses were interested in governing, but because they had placed their hopes in a dictator named Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I guess my thing is, you know, if there is a robust Republican small R structure uh, by which the masses can actually throw weight into the government, I'd be all right with that. What I fear is that, you know, in the last, I'll just say in my lifetime, last 30 years doesn't mean anything to someone who's 32. Uh, <laughs> you know, in my lifetime, I've watched as Reagan and then Clinton and then, you know, I, I just skipped Elder Bush, didn't I? I always yes. do that. One <laughs> of the least populist presidents of our time, I think. Yeah, but I mean, as Reagan he was and, president. and then George W. Bush and now I think Obama, frankly, uh, continue to consolidate more and more power in the person of the president. You know, it does frighten me that someone who can rally the masses and put their, get them to identify with one individual, you know, that I think is what Plato, you know, we got the Romans, why not get the Greeks in here? I think that's what he feared most about democracy. And in the Republic, of course, he says that democracy leads very naturally to tyranny because once you convince the people that, you know, it's them against some elite. Uh, then you can very quickly convince them, as Satan does in Paradise Lost, book two, uh, that the best course of action for opposing those who are to blame is to put their power in you, the individual. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, I tend to be uh, you know, a Platonist, Catonist, uh, Republican with a small R in that respect. And I mean, that, not the voice of the people, but the people investing themselves in and I'll, I'll use this in the classical Roman sense, a dictator figure mm-hmm. is what I fear the most. I, I, I think I, 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 agree with, I agree with you, Nathan, and it's actually, I think, one of the reasons why um, communist, governance, com, communist governments never fail to, uh, to n- never function. Um, right. because, the because the is Well, it's because they see themselves as, as the people's party, as opposing the man. But they refuse to concede that once they're in charge, they're the man now. Sure, sure. And and David, we've talked about this. I mean, that's what <laughs> baffled me about the whole run of the Bush years is that even though he was the president, mm-hmm. even though he had a majority of Congress most of that time, even though the Supreme Court was largely backing his plays, he's still never tired of talking about how we need to oppose the government. Right. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> is, is this is this some kind of extension of of, of our uh, Christian humanist dicta against hip pastors? What's that now? Oh, once you are the president, you can't be a populist anymore. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> one, yeah. <laughs> is, there, is that our fourth ex cathedra pronouncement? I, the- I actually need to start you know a page on our website. I did. You know, it started track of our. It, it is. It's already there. Oh, is yeah. it really excellent? Yeah. Awesome. Once once you're the man, be the man. Stop pretending you aren't the man. Ex cathedra pronouncement number four. Very good. Huzzah. Now, do, you, do you have them indexed by episode, Michael? Uh, yes. Well, it's, it's a list of them, and afterwards in parentheses, there's the there's the episode. You can get through that through the uh, Why Christian mm-hmm. Humanists page on the yeah. blog. Very good. Or, I think it's actually on the podcast. Can I make a uh, Can I make another a comment real quick? Shoot. Yes, sir. That that last quote you brought up culture wars. Um, I think. My my impression has always been that 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 that's code for um, social cons. Um, I think that's so, fair enough. Yep. Social social conservatives, and he's saying, well, you know the, you know that's a bygone era. The culture wars are over. Basically, claiming that the you know so, social conservatives have lost. 
Um, that I think is wishful thinking, um, and I don't think it. Uh, I don't think that's something that has to do with populism. Um, it has to do with mores, um, and I, I think uh, in in a, in a lot of ways it's kind of funny to me that he's that he can say that the culture the culture wars are over, but I think about who were, who were the popular vampire who was the popular vampires when uh, when I was in high school. Uh, they were Anne Rice. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, Just, now you've got the celibate Mormon vampires. Exactly. Now you've got the celibate <laughs> the celibate vampires who wait till they're married. Um, right. They'll the, sell their souls, but they won't get into bed. You know. I mean, who who's on the, the other who's, ha- on the other hand, David, turn to any um any network at eight p.m. and tell me what you see on television. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I know. It's not like the other has gone away. But um, the Duggars weren't on television when I was in high school. Well, they're on basic cable now. I know, I know. Um, and on the covers of magazines, and people follow them in the same way that they do that, that you know, that train wreck of, of uh, you know, the Goslins or whatever. Anyway. Who were, um, uh, by the way, who were conservative icons until about a, about a year ago. Yeah. Who were followed the same way the Duggars are now. Right. Mm-hmm. David, I do want to pose a question to you, though. I mean, what do you make, then, of the fact that the big conservative uprising right now is almost entirely libertarian-flavored? Yep. I mean, the Tea Party, I won't say the other one. The Tea Party, I mean, seems (laughs) almost entirely unconcerned with gay marriage, abortion, pornography, you know, sort of the big focus-on-the-family-style issues, and yet they seem to be the most vigorous conservative movement going on right now. Right. Um, it goes back to what, what I, what I said earlier about what I think is the instinct of most people who are sort of by bent more conservative is that the, the, they, they tend to just try to pursue their ends and let the government do its thing. Just stay out of, you know, just, just stay out of my way and let me make my life. Um, I think there's a widespread feeling that, that, uh, that pe- that that people are being hurt where they hurt the worst, which is their wallets, and uh, they're they're not seeing uh, the government's policies, which are ostensibly uh, put in place to to fix that problem, as actually doing so. And so I I, I, I see the you know the the tea the Tea Party as the 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 people who who are screaming because they've been hurt where where to them the government can hurt them worst which is which is their money <laughs> and I, um, I'm not sure they've actually been hurt there I I think they're more afraid they're going to be hurt there but I don't know mm-hmm. I don't follow them quite that closely right as I said I'm um, I'm terribly afraid of of the Tea Party. Okay, but uh, I think that that the social cons are it, it's different. I, I think I think I, you know, I'm more socially. I'm a social conservative, and I and I feel like we've got more of a voice in in the culture today. And you know, there are there are places in our culture where you can turn and we can be represented and get some kind of respect. And that's and that's that's cool, you know. Um, I. I, I I think we've, you know, social cons have adjusted to sort of accept representation. <laughs> well, let, let me, and I realize I'm picking on you today, David, but I mean, let me That's press fine. another question. I mean, you know, doesn't that position of being represented means that mean that that's not the working assumption anymore? I mean, part of, you know, what makes part of what social conservatives are reacting against, you know, was something called the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that there was this working assumption that, you know, there was this family structure, there was this social structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, now, I mean, for lack of a better term, you know, what you talk about, you know, with Stephanie Meyer's vampire novels, uh, whatever show you guys were talking about that I've never heard of. Uh, I've seen <laughs> kids and counting. Okay, sure. Uh, you know, it seems like, you know, if anything, they have become just another consumer choice, you know, that you can run to if you dig it. Uh, but there's no sense anymore that there's even anything to oppose. I got to say, I'm with Nathan on this one. I am um, 
I'll go ahead and put my political preference out there. I am fiscally liberal and socially conservative, but I'm also a fatalist. And I think <laughs> I would love to see the sexual revolution turned back. I think it was, um, I think it was almost an unequivocal evil. Almost, I, I kind of agree. I, you know, I like women's women's lib, but I, I don't like all the things that came along with the sexual revolution. And I, I wouldn't mind seeing it turned back, except for li- women's lib. Mm. I don't think there's, um, I don't think there's they any turning it back. I, I think, I think, I think that's not recoverable. Mm-hmm. Um, and David, so, what do you think? Um, I think well, I'm going to go back to back to representation. I think one of the reasons why um, social conservatives, especially as I was growing up, felt so um, embattled was that there wasn't there wasn't really a face in the popular culture that they that they saw themselves in, and that when there were representations of, you know, if 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 church people were being you know, if if religious people were being represented, it was almost invariably bad. Um, virginity is something to be gotten over with as quickly as possible, um, and so forth and so forth and so forth. Okay. Um, but I think that you know, as there as there are more more, I, I think there are more options in our culture for which you know. Uh, which which public faces we can see ourselves in, um, that it, 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 at least at least in my view, I feel less embattled because I feel like people can people can see my my side of the moral universe represented and can and can see it function and 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 can choose and it can kind of be its own. It can be its own witness, in a way. Right. Um, I don't think, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll concede to to Michael that, you know, to a certain kind of uh, cultural fatalism, um, you know, as we kind of slouch towards whatever it is we slouch towards. Um, but at the same time, I, th- I think it's, I, th- I think social conservatives feel better now, in that. If if they can be heard, then perhaps they can persuade, and I, I, I think they've they've learned to be content with that. Right, and I mean, I'll go ahead and say, David, that I mean personally, I welcome this state of affairs precisely for the reasons you just gave. You know, I you know, I since I'm a self-identified quasi Anabaptist loon, uh, <laughs> to which Michael added, you know, a humorless quasi Anabaptist loon. Uh, you know, I, I think that it is a good thing that we are not the establishment because we can actually articulate a vision of the good life uh, that, you know, stands in contrast to what I would call the dominant consumerist meta narrative. And I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that, Nathan. And, you know, I, I didn't really get that when I first read it in Stan Harawas in the 90s. Mm. But, you know, he was writing from a post-liberal point of view uh, where, you know, he kind of realized that the church's role was not to be the chaplain to the Democratic Party, uh, but rather to, you know, present an alternative, a counter-community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm starting to realize more and more that, you know, as the so-called South Park Republican uh, becomes the norm rather than the focus on the family Republican— Right. Or I should say, you know, as libertarian tendencies start to overwhelm traditionalist tendencies mm-hmm. within, you know, the GOP, certainly perhaps in conservatism writ large, uh, I think that, you know, this does present a moment for the church over in our evangelical neighborhood to do some of the things that Stan Harawas was talking about over in the mainline neighborhood 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't know. Maybe this is maybe this is just saying what you said again, Nathan. But uh, I, I think for the most part, or probably social, better. I think for the most part, social cons have gone Augustine City of God. Okay. And, and just uh, and and kind of decided, you know what? We're not going to change the city of man uh-huh. in, in, into us. We just have to be the city of God, living in the city of man. And they can and and this the citizens that we kneel amongst, they can decide which city they want to live in. 
Well, it's fascinating. I mean, if you ever get a, you know, you can probably find it online for a buck plus shipping, but uh, Stan Hauerwas's, I believe, 1986 book, Resident Aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went back and revisited that, you know, I don't know if it was this summer or if it was, you know, last school year, uh, but the things that he was writing about mainline Protestant culture then, I mean, just rang so true to what has become of a lot of evangelical culture, like I said, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting we're getting near our hour, so let's go ahead and do our uh, wrap up question, um, and and which is in, in this case, what do you think the role of conservatism in either its movement or its philosophical forms is going to be from this point forward? Tannenhaus hints that eras in which uh, one political party wanes and the other waxes, uh, those are typically times to uh, regroup and rethink. Do you see that happening? In, in other words, is conservatism uh, is conservatism dead? I don't think um, I don't think it's dead for for reasons that that I've explained. I think because uh, Tannen House, I believe, confounds um, Burke's observations about the function of conservatism within cult uh, within a philosophical culture with the goals that that the actual conservatives on the ground are pursuing. Um, I think because he confounds those. Um, Sitting in the in the moment that 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 he's sitting in now, uh, he he thinks he sees it dead. Um, I don't think uh, I I don't think it is, um, because you're always going to have people in any political environment who see things change in ways that they don't think are for the better, and would prefer that that either the status quo be preserved or that a model from some previous era be be resurrected. That's not going to go away. Um, but I think what is going to happen is that in in every specific political moment, um, the, those people who who see their moment in that way are going to have to fashion their own ideology, and they're going to have to do it. Uh, they're going to have to do it carefully and rationally, and consider. Which aspects of of the past and the present are worth preserving, and what are the reasons for that, and how can we persuade people that that's that that's the way to go and not not the way of change? Um, so, you know, the, I, I I guess I guess my answer is that conservative is that. Conservatism is not going to go away, but it's going to have to change. And it's going to have to be, I guess, more overtly conscious in which issues it embraces and how it uh, uh, how it argues for those. I guess. Nathan, what's uh, what's your take home point? Well, I'm I'm going to try to be a wannabe Anabaptist again and say that I think that our particular moment, you know, is one like I said, where 20 years ago there was a movement within the Protestant mainline establishment that said, we need to stop tying our fortunes to the democratic national convention. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that there are a number of evangelicals who are realizing that, you know, it would be an equally big mistake to throw our hat in with the Democrats as it would be to continue to tie our fates to the GOP. Uh, and I think that, you know, here's where, I, where I'm going to be a wannabe Anabaptist. I think that one of the best things that Christians from both of those traditions, both of those fears can do uh, is start to read each other's stories, read each other's follies, uh, learn from each other's lessons, and hopefully start to forge something that isn't in the middle of Republicans and Democrats, because I think more and more there's no such thing as anything in the middle of them. I think they're merging into one entity. Uh, but to really start thinking hard about, okay, what does it mean to be a political animal in the Aristotelian sense? In mm-hmm. what ways can the church be a polis within the polis? Uh, you know, in what way can the international church stand in the face of, you know, national and partisan allegiances and say, you know, the way of Christ is a a different way. You know, those who are in Christ are a new creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I guess, you know, that's sort of the pastor in me. That's the wannabe Anabaptist in me coming out. Uh, but I think that there are certainly th- things to learn from 
what I would call Russell Kirk conservatism, just as I think there are things to learn from uh, Catholic solidarity movements on the left. Uh, I think that if we take the best of those things, and I think as Christians we have the liberty to do so uh, because our king is not in Washington, uh, I, I mm. think that you know we Christians really do face a moment uh, not unique in history, but certainly important in history when we can start to imagine differently. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Um, we hope you enjoyed what turned out to be a fairly civil political discussion among three guys with pretty divergent political views. I'm uh, sorry for that. I just got too nice again. Uh, <laughs> I, I know I know you'll uh, you'll bring the rage again some other week. Uh, David, what are we going to be talking about next week? Well, um, taking inspiration from uh, Nathan's literary hell, I'm going to take uh, Vincini's advice and go back to the beginning. We're going to look at literary creations, um, versions of... Uh, well, the Genesis account, but also uh, other other beginnings of the world that have been uh, influential in uh, the imagination of the Western canon and uh, iterations through to today. So that's what we're going to do. Sounds great. In the meantime, if you'd like to join the discussion, you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or visit our webpage and blog at www.christianhumanist.org where there's a new and hopefully thoughtful post every day. If you're Sam Tannenhaus and think we've treated you unfairly, send us an email and we'll be happy to have you on the show. Until next time, <laughs> this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. So the same, same.